Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. They say you shouldn't talk politics at the dinner table, but these are strange times, and if we're being honest, politics and food have always intersected, and now more than ever. I'm Rob Patron, and you're listening to Hot Takes on a Plate here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm joined this week by an eating enthusiast who you may know from his frequent appearances on MSNBC or his coverage of the Trump White House for the Associated Press, or maybe you're one of the 127,000 people who follow him on Twitter. My friend Jonathan Lemire is joining me via social distancing technology. And John, before we get to the food and politics hot takes, it's kind of ironic that we're doing this remotely because you were actually the last friend I saw in person before self-quarantine. Quarantining? Quarantining? Quarantining. I think quarantining. We'll go with that. First of all, I say <laughs> I'm thrilled uh, to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I love to eat. Uh, and you're right. We saw each other at a, at a, a schoolyard, a playground at our children's uh, elementary school a couple weeks, you know, three at this point, three, almost four weeks ago, I guess. Uh, and I think that was the Sunday. Right. Or, the, or was that weekend? It was the, it was the fr- yeah, it was it was the Friday. Be- it was the last day that there was school before That's New right. York City shut down the schools. And I remember it was like that. It was a weird day because on one side, we were all like our kids are still in school. So that's kind of normal. But we were all aware of the situation and wondering maybe why they were in school and maybe they shouldn't be in school. And nobody was doing the six foot social distancing at the time. But there was that sort of. That, that there was an energy in the air that just felt manic to me. Right, you're right. There weren't the official guidelines yet, but I prefer to keep a healthy distance from you anytime I can. <laughs> uh, but you are right. It was the, that felt like that was the moment that week where things were changing, where people were taking this seriously. The, the you know some school systems across the country had already closed. Mary De Blasio had uh, here in New York had held out until that point, but it, it, within a few days later, he ordered it closed as well. Um, the tenor from the from the White House had had begun to change. We had heard for so many weeks the president saying this was going to just blow over. You know, this won't be a big deal. We've got it under control. Uh, and finally, we were hearing uh, warnings from the Oval Office or in his administration that this is this is going to be something we have to take to take seriously. Uh, and it is hard. I mean, we're you know we've been friends for years. It's it's difficult to we can't you can't see anybody now. You're just you're not you shouldn't. If you see them on the street, you, you kind of wave and keep going and keep your distance. Um, and I think that what is, it's been an adjustment, obviously, and for a lot of people, a very challenging month. Uh, and I think what's daunting is we probably have many, many weeks ahead. Yeah. And you had just gotten back when we were uh, in that playground on that that day from 30 Rock doing one of your MSNBC appearances. And I'm just curious, how has your job from a nuts and bolts standpoint both in terms of the TV stuff and, of course, covering the Trump White House changed in this global pandemic that we're in right now, trying to stay home. You're, you're doing you're being a journalist from home. Yeah, it's changed dramatically in, in both jobs. Uh, one at a time, uh, you know, my job is it's covering the White House. Associated Press has always been a little bit unusual. Uh, because I live in New York, and the White House, of course, is in Washington. But I covered the Trump campaign. I had actually even covered Trump the man uh, for, for some time when I was back with the New York Daily News, because he was just a you know, New York celebrity person in the news, and you'd, you'd occasionally have to deal with him. But they wanted me to cover the campaign for the AP. 
uh, and you know, the, which was New York based at the time. And even after he won, the idea was to stay here in New York, be a full-fledged member of the White House team, you know, be in Washington a lot, but keep the base here in New York because this is where his business is. The Trump Organization is obviously here. Most of his family's here in New York. Uh, and there was a belief at the time that he was going to come back nearly every weekend. That part, of course, didn't didn't pan out. But the rest of it has been useful to be in New York. Now, I am in D.C. a lot, uh, you know, most weeks, at least for a day or two, uh, sometimes longer uh, to, to, for meetings and to be in the building and, and such, uh, to go on all the, the trips. And in fact, I just had come back just from India uh, not too long before. I, I mean, saw you've you. been all over the world covering the Trump. Yeah, White House. no, it, it, it is. It, it's a high watermark of the. Of the job is yeah I've been to you know I've covered his summit with Kim Jong Un in Hanoi as well as uh, their historic meeting at the DMZ that was last year uh, I've covered him in Europe a few times including his summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki uh, you know you do travel the world when you cover the president and we had just gotten back from India which at the moment stands as his last foreign trip and since uh, we're staring at an election this might might be his last foreign trip, at least for some time, um, when I saw you. And, and, and is, you know, because of the quarantine, because of how bad things have been in New York, and, and, and now things are picking up in DC, I've remained here. So I haven't been to Washington in, in a few weeks. So it's a question of you get your sources on the phone, you're, you're reaching them by text, you're, you're obviously always plugged in. You know, and you doing do, it with two young children, you know, just a few feet away. I mean, do we have two young children just a few feet away, which of course presents its own challenges. But uh, you know, it, 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 it having to do the job remotely is is something that technology helps with. You are able to. I can I can have my laptop. I can have a live stream of the press briefing. I can communicate with my colleague who's actually sitting in the chair in the briefing room and feed him or her questions to answer to ask the president. So that's certainly helpful. Uh, at a certain point, of course, I'll, even with uh, you know this pandemic still continuing, I'll need to get to DC. But right now, it's also important to be here. Uh, to be here with my family and, and to be safe. As far as the NBC job, just very briefly, that's changed too. Uh, anyone who's watching cable news these days is getting a good look at their favorite correspondent <laughs> contributors' living rooms. Uh, a lot of folks are going with bookcases as their backdrop. I've got an interior brick wall, uh, so slightly different. That's probably good in a way because I've seen a lot of people getting snarky and judging people's books of choice, which cracks me up. Like you're not allowed to have certain books on the wall. Heaven forbid you have a book of baby names on the wall or something or other. There's a lot of judgment. Uh, and a couple of my friends, two or three of them at least, have their bookcases color-coded, uh, which also has drawn a lot of attention, not all positive, uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, my brick wall is, a di is different, uh, so it's a sort of distinctive, I guess. Um, I, people noticed that the other day I hung up a, a, a painting, uh, not of uh, you know, my wedding day or of the children, uh, the photograph I put up was instead of uh, Jason Veritek, the former Red Sox catcher, punching Alex Rodriguez in the face, uh, the Yankees uh, star at the time back in 2004, which is really the most meaningful moment of my life to this point. Um, but I now have a mini TV studio in my already very small apartment because uh, MSNBC has sent camera equipment and tripods and the halo light and sound and everything else to be able to contribute and contribute effectively to you know, the variety of, of shows that I help out with for them. Absolutely. Now, I alluded earlier to the fact that food and politics have never intersected quite like they are intersecting at this moment. And so much of the coronavirus bailout has to do with food, money to put it on our tables, and assistance for small businesses like restaurants. So what are some of the ways you see the bailout helping and maybe possibly even hurting restaurants? 
Well, first of all, you're right in that food is sort of one of the exceptions, of course, right? Like grocery stores staying open. Uh, it's, a, it's an essential. Uh, restaurants are permitted to stay open. Now, granted, they're in almost every state. They're required to just do takeout or delivery. Um, you know, here in New York, of course, the restaurant culture is so vital to why we all choose to live here. So, you know, we, you know, we certainly have made decisions to try to support some of the businesses in the, uh, that are still here. But of course, like you, I'm sure, are heartbroken by others that we've already seen seen closed and worried they're not going to be able to come back. Uh, yes, in terms of the administration, you were right. I mean, we've had one rather massive two-plus trillion-dollar stimulus package or economic relief package already signed into law. There's talk in already of another needed within the next few weeks. Uh, the unemployment numbers are staggering. In the first couple weeks of this pandemic, more than 10 million Americans have lost their jobs, and a lot of them are in the restaurant industry. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that uh, 60% of people who have lost their job during this are people who work in restaurants and bars. Yeah. I mean, that's a staggering number. Right. I, think... I mean, it, 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 the service industry there is, is no doubt in a very, very hard hit because these are places that, I mean, this is your area of expertise far more than mine, but you know, so many of them sort of barely get by. They're not huge profit centers. Even restaurants that do well don't necessarily clear a lot of, a, a lot of overhead there. And, you know, to, to suddenly be out of circulation for a few weeks or to have things dramatically cut is, is devastating. So the, you know, the, the, the government, the administration has certainly touted their, their small business loans, the SBA program, uh, you know, where they can give loans, but certainly there are some penalties and strings attached to them where restaurants may uh, run afoul. You know, we certainly know that Americans in the next few weeks are supposed to get checks, $1,200 or so, uh, that will help, but that's not enough necessarily for people to be able to, 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 to hang out for, for their restaurant jobs to come back. Well, and when Trump had, um, before the bailout, had that, that restaurant industry conference call, it was with McDonald's and Domino's and Subway and et cetera, et cetera. There wasn't anybody who represents the mom and pops. There was nobody on that call, even that, you know, a lot of these celebrity chef types that have, they don't have the, the footprint of, say, a McDonald's, you know, obviously they're not hurting in terms of the fact that, you know, they're wealthy individuals, but a lot of those places, you know, maybe they have five, six, seven, ten, twenty restaurants have had to lay off entire workforces or close to it. None of those people were on that call. No, you're right. And uh, we actually had on Morning Joe a few days um, before the, the uh, restrictions really started here in New York. Uh, one of the last shows we actually taped from 30 Rock and Tom Cluthio was on. Uh, and he was talking about how you know, he estimated 50, 60, 70% of restaurants would not come back. And he made the same point that you did. That he wanted to make sure he's obviously very successful. Uh, but, you know, he wanted, he was afraid, he said on air, that his fear was when we got through this, whenever that was, what would be left standing for the most part with these, with these huge chains, uh, the big conglomerates or, you know, the, the restaurants that had huge money behind them, as opposed to those mom and pop places that are so distinct that often become our favorite restaurants and, and give our neighborhoods their distinctive care. We've talked a lot about serious stuff, but I do think people during this time need a little bit of a distraction. It's okay to have some fun. People are watching Tiger King, so they're clearly not all I have encompassed. I have. Uh, it's fine. It's it's. I mean, look, it's there's a lot of weird stuff rolled up into one amazing package. And I think that's where the obsession comes from. But it's it's definitely trashy. <laughs> it's uh, uh, yeah, it is what it is. 
it is what it is. If if you don't get to it, your life you it'll continue and you'll be just fine. But anyway, for those who are listening for the first time here on Hot Takes on a Plate, you of course get to eavesdrop on the ultimate food fights as I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts in their areas of expertise. So, John, I'm going to throw some hot takes of mine at you that involve food and politics, and your job is to tell me why I'm right or why I'm wrong. You ready? Let's do it. All right. What politicians eat on the campaign trail doesn't matter. This is one of those things that every election cycle America obsesses over. You know, there was that time when John Kerry had the audacity to put Swiss cheese on a Philly cheesesteak. Barack Obama, he was an elitist because he ate arugula. Donald Trump eats his steaks well done. None of it matters to me. We care too much as an electorate about liking our politicians and relating to them and not enough about how they're going to govern and do the job. So to me, what politicians eat on the campaign trail and in general, it really doesn't matter. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I wish you were right, but I think you're wrong. I okay. think that people do, at least on some level, care. I think the care example is a good one, where he was painted as sort of, by doing that, not knowing to put whiz on it, uh, he was portrayed, it sort of fed, in, it reinforced the image that he was out of touch. But it uh, shouldn't. When George H.W. Bush went to the supermarket and didn't know how much a gallon of milk cost, that reinforced That's a little different. But that's a little different. Touch. That's because that's not had, that's not taste in food. Now Trump can, can be mocked uh, as much as you want for his taste in in, in steak, uh, and he's turned the you know celebratory White House visit for championship teams into a showcase. Oh, we're gonna get we're, we're we're gonna get to that. Don't worry. All right, we'll hold that thought. Um, you know, I think that the, the food thing is, is is there's more harm than good. No one's going to applaud you if you eat the right thing. But like, there are lots of silly pictures of of, of politicians at state fairs eating a hot dog and the picture is snapped just so where it's sort of embarrassing. And I think you have, you, 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 you know, you have moments where, you know, John, I remember in 2016 during the New York primary being up at the, uh, up in um, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx when John Kasich was still barely hanging on to his uh, presidential bid. And he literally sat down in an Italian market and ate for three hours. Uh, and, and for some, that was the most memorable thing was that he had, he consumed more food than any other person had ever done in one setting. Um, I, with you, it shouldn't matter, but politicians are celebrities. It, again, they shouldn't be, but they are. And at least right now, they're, they're those sort of things, people want to know those details. People care about that sort of stuff. And it helps reinforce images that are already out there. But it's just so weird. Like, I like guess a politician ever gained anything from eating something. It's always a knock. It's a knock if you don't put the right cheese on the cheesesteak or if you eat arugula or you get your steak well done. It, there's never – I don't ever hear anyone saying bravo for eating this. Right. It's, it's, there's far more risk than reward uh, when it comes to a campaign trail eats. Um, but, it, but it is judged. Whenever you know Trump hasn't done many of these, but when there's like a, a formal state dinner, when a head of state comes to visit, you know, people want to know the menu. I mean I think that there are, there are things that matter. Well, like, okay, I'll give you an example. Barack Obama, say what you want about the guy. He had good culinary taste. If you're a food person, like, he would go, when he would go out to eat, he always knew where to go out, right? Like, when he'd come visit New York, he'd always go to, like, that place that is, like, the hottest place for people who know food. And yet, he would still get painted as, can you believe that Barack Obama 
he he you know he took secret service and he had the audacity to go on a date and go to that restaurant and he's an elitist and there's no there's no way you can win even if you pick a good restaurant you're still a loser yeah and people will find fault with whatever you do particularly in this hyper polarized situation but that is certainly a, a area where he obama is a dramatic contrast between how he approaches this because you're right uh, I covered some of those events here in New York when he would have a fundraiser at a restaurant or even just a date night with Michelle. Contrast that with with Donald Trump, who he has now been president for over three years in Washington, D.C. He has never, not once, gone out to a restaurant in the city except for the one at his own hotel. He has never patronized a local establishment, uh, in part because he's a creature of habit. Uh, that's number one. Number two, he wants to be able to uh, make some money off of it. And if he and his dining companions and service and secret service and other folks are going to all put down money for a meal, do so at the Trump Hotel. But then three, and I think this shouldn't be overlooked. Obviously, Washington is a deeply Democratic city. I believe it's 90 percent uh, went for Hillary in 2016. I don't think there are many restaurants where you could go and get a friendly reception. OK, now I'm about to possibly contradict myself with this next take. If you really want to know who's going to win an election, ask yourself which candidate most of America would rather have a beer with. I think that's why Biden is on his way to winning the Democratic nomination. It's not because he had the best debate performances by any stretch, but when you look at the rest of that field, he's the guy that you go, he'd be kind of cool to have a beer with. If you go back, I mean, you know, uh, go back to you can go back as far as you want. You know, Reagan was a guy people wanted to have a beer with. I, th I think you could argue. I think Bill Clinton was a guy people wanted to have a beer with. I think George W. Bush was a guy people wanted to have a beer with. John Kerry was not that guy. You know, I laugh at this moment right now when people are saying we should, you know, draft Andrew Cuomo to be the Democratic nominee because he's doing such a great job in New York. The thing is, Andrew Cuomo did not run for president, in my opinion, because he knew he's not a charismatic leader by and large. He's he's a guy who who can do the job and he's efficient, but he's not he doesn't have that. I want to have a beer with him personality. And that's what you, that's that's what you need in general, usually. So the beer, right or wrong? You're right. I agree with this one. Uh, I think, first of all, on the Cuomo point, uh, I think he is someone who he certainly received high marks mostly across the board for his response to the coronavirus crisis here in New York State. Uh, but he's always been a, someone who has ruled, he's been more respected than loved. Uh, right. He is you know, not the cuddliest. Exactly. For sure. Uh, and in some ways, he's a throwback to what presidents sort of used to be like. Uh, but, you, but there has been a shift, and it's, connect, it's not unconnected to the previous point. So pres, presidents now, we know so much about them because of the media, the way they're covered. It's 24-7 on television and on social media and so on. I mean, you know, everything is out in the open. Frankly, most of America didn't realize that Franklin Roosevelt was paralyzed from the waist down because it was just treated differently then. Those those details weren't seen as newsworthy. Well, heck, you're a, you're a big sports fan. Think about the way sports used to be covered, right? Like sure. athletes would do all sorts of salacious things and the journalists were in on it and never spoke about it ever, never wrote about it, nothing. And that's obviously very different now. Ask Tiger Woods as one example. Uh, I think that in terms of politicians though, Certainly, in the, especially in the last few decades, the likability factor seems to matter more. Americans know their president so much better, and they kind of want to like them, and they do the idea of wanting to have a beer with. The best example of that of the, I'd rather get a beer with candidate you mentioned him is George W. Bush. 
who was seen as a you know much more personal, approachable character than either Al Gore, who we beat in 2000, or John Kerry, who we beat in 2004. Trump's a little bit different uh, because Americans kind of knew him already, and it should, should never be overstated how important The Apprentice plays in all of this because he was in Americans' living rooms uh, once a week for a dozen years or so over that show. And he was already had this image of being sort of, and obviously you can argue the show maybe took some liberties along the way, but he had this image of being sort of the respected, decisive businessman. So people knew him as that. He also ran, and he, I believe, uh, that he had, there's no question of this step, that he had in 2016, when he ran for president, one of the top two most unfavorable ratings of any presidential candidate we've ever seen. The other one in the top two, Hillary Clinton. Yep. And the two of them together. So the likability factor was sort of didn't apply in that one race. But even in that race, I think, you know, obviously it was a very polarized race and there wasn't a lot of movement in the middle. But I think I think more people, more people who voted for Trump would probably want to have a beer with Trump than people who voted for Clinton would want to have a beer with Clinton, if that makes sense. Potentially. I mean, Trump has a, has a certainly an air of, of celebrity to him uh, that I think people were drawn to. Of course, the Trump, irony, he doesn't drink beer. He does not. Uh, and neither does Joe Biden, actually. And by the time he was president, neither did George W. Bush. Uh, the, I think that Trump is someone, though, who he's a larger than life personality. I think people who, who like him are drawn to that. He can be in his own way funny at times. Um, people think who like him think that, and I and I do think you know certainly we're also a country that is still this is not a controversial statement. Uh, we still have a lot of sexism when it comes to how we view uh, politicians. Absolutely, and I, think, I think Secretary Clinton uh, had to deal with that as well. Uh, but you're but uh, in terms of this year, there is a contrast because Biden, though established, he doesn't drink, is someone who he's Uncle Joe. Uh, you know, he, he's he's been certainly in this stage of his career is seen as this very sort of likable, even somewhat goofy character. And I think that the fact that the way The Onion portrayed him, it really sort of changed how people viewed him. It was sort of a loving caricature. And the fact that Barack Obama spoke so highly and warmly of him, you could really feel the friendship between those two men. I think that played a role, too. So, yes, I mean, right now. It's hard to make any sort of political judgments on this year because the virus, the pandemic has just changed the equation so much. But in a regular, if this were a normal contest, maybe we'll still have that this fall. We'll see. Um, but certainly in terms of the who would you rather have a beer with uh, question, you probably get at least a slight edge to Joe Biden. I mean, if I were Joe Biden, my, 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 if I were a campaign advisor to him, I would say, Joe, leave the aviators on at all times. <laughs> just leave them on. He, he, I mean, he just, that's, that's the, I want to have a beer with guy. Uh, all right. Next one. You alluded to it earlier. Trump, of course, like every president before him will have championship athletic teams to the white house for a celebratory dinner, lunch, meet and greet, handshake pictures, all that stuff. Some teams of course have opted out (laughs) during this era, but one team that did not was the Clemson Tiger football team for winning the NCAA football championship. And Trump, of course, as you said, served them fast food. Now, I like the idea of serving college kids comfort food. I actually think serving them something more highbrow is intimidating, maybe. So I actually like that idea. But the idea of it being fast food was just awful. I mean, you can serve these kids burgers and fries and make them in the White House 
and make them fresh and make them a better quality, maybe make them the best burger they've ever had. Outsourcing a bunch of junk food that these kids have had a million times. And, and I don't know how they kept it warm. Did they keep it warm? Maybe you have some inside knowledge on that. But that stuff, like if you get fast food, it disintegrates fast. It does not hold its, it's not, it's not like getting Chinese food where it's nice and packed in that container and it retains its heat. Burgers go limp. Fries, I mean, McDon- have you ever had McDonald's fries like 10 minutes after you order them? Awful. Garbage. Like what was going on there? That was, that was just the worst. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. This one's hard to say because I'm with you uh, that I'll say you're mostly right, except that in terms of a, in terms of a meal, you're right. But in terms of the politics, you're wrong. I think that, yes, I'm sure there, there are college kids who get to the White House who would prefer to have something that's more than the, the Wendy's burger they could have bought on their own uh, on the way into the White House. There's literally a McDonald's on 17th Street uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, a block from the White House. You could have stopped there. Um, but I think that for a president who, especially when it was with Clemson, and he's brought out the fast food for other, other championship teams as well, you know, it's about a demographic play for him. It was, you know, it's a Southern school. These are regular kids. He's trying to, he's trying to play to sort of his regular, regular folks uh, who vote for him um, in, in, in a lot of states, and in, in that includes down South. And I think that for him, the optics of like turning up his nose, the Washington establishment, remember this, the guy who ran, under the credo of drain uh, the swamp and we can evaluate how successful he's been on that. But in terms of the people who like him, like that idea of him, of him upending the traditions and, and changing things and being like, Hey, I, I identify with that. And okay, therefore, but you're telling me the white house chef couldn't make like a great barbecue spread, right? Like you're telling me they couldn't, uh, yeah, you know, pulled pork but, but, sandwiches or, or do some fried chicken or, or something that 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 speaks to a southern demographic and do it with quality and integrity. Or heck, if you're going to order in like you can't get Shake Shack, yeah, I'm well, sure there's a Shake Shack in in Washington, D.C. I mean, come on. There, there are a few and one not too far from from the White House. Um you're right on all of that. If it was just based on the quality of the meal you're giving the kid, you are right. But if you want to also have the political optics to go with it, that's why Trump did it. All right. I want to know what restaurant you most look forward to returning to when it reopens. All right. Well, I'm going to vote I'm going to vote with my heart here. Uh, and, and, and hopefully there's some good wishes attached. And I, I think you and I might even differ on this particular restaurant, but there's a block just a block or two for, uh, from our where we live, there's a uh, Argentinian steak place that we really like. Um, not just because the food's very good, it is, but also they're really good with our where our two boys. No, it's solid. Um, it's a solid yeah. restaurant. It's a neighborhood yeah. place. It's good. It's a neighborhood place. That's exactly right. And we go there. It's it's the kind of place where you want to go out on a weekend. You just kind of want to do something relatively easy. Uh, you know, it's going to be good. The staff it's is comfort. Good. It's home. It's comfort food. All right, totally now good. now let me rephrase that question. Restaurant you most look forward to returning to when it reopens. If Joe and Mika are paying. Oh, well, then, I mean, where do I begin <laughs> on that? Uh, I'll finish the thought by saying that I hope El Libertador, which is on the corner, uh, reopens because they are not at the moment. Um, if Joe, I mean, if Joe and Mika are paying, I mean, if, I mean, if they, well, first of all, dinner would have to be early. Uh, they, uh, if you get up at 4.30 and 5 o'clock uh, every morning of your life, you tend to eat uh, dinner on the early side. In fact, I will say very briefly, that when I uh, I had dinner at their house in Florida for the first time, uh, and they invited me over, 
and I was coming from an assignment because I'd been at Mar-a-Lago with the president, uh, and uh, I was going to meet them afterwards. Uh, and I suggested a, a time. I was like, "Oh, could it be like you know, I'd probably be there six thirty, seven or so." And it was made very clear to me that it should not be any later than six, and frankly, five thirty would be better. <laughs> well, look, lots of good restaurants open at five o'clock. Do you have one? If you're blowing out the budget, uh, I mean, it's a, I. I mean, I'm a sucker for Peter Luger's as there's a steak place. Uh, I still so like when Pete Wells wrote that review, you were not happy. No, I wasn't. And I, and I and frankly, and I'm curious to get your take. I don't know if we've discussed it, but like uh, I know Luger's is, is a little bit old in tooth in some ways. And there are other steak places that are perhaps more well thought of. But I just it's just such a tradition. I think the meat it's you are you going for the ambiance? Not necessarily, but you're going because I think it's still a really it's a really good steak. And I was surprised that so many people seem to agree with that. You know, so, okay, so I've had Luger now. I've only had the Brooklyn one once. I've had the Long Island one a few occasions with my old TV gig. And when I had it on Long Island, I thought it was the best steak I had ever yeah. had, that dry aged porterhouse for two. Now, I will say when I went to Brooklyn, and this was in that time frame that I think Pete Wells was talking about, because it was at this point, it was just a little over a year ago. I think it was probably fall of 2018. It was not the same. I did not find the dry age funk to be as intense. It was a little bit, it wasn't, they won't tell you how long they dry aged the meat. And I've always kind of guessed that maybe it was like in that 40 to 45 day range, which is more than most steakhouses do when they dry age, but not to this crazy level of intensity. And what I had tasted more like a 20 day dry age, which is just going to, you know, tenderize it, give it a little bit more minerality, but you're not going to get any of that, what I call movie theater buttered popcorn kind of hit on the nose. Um, you know, it was expensive. It was fine. It was an experience. Yeah, everybody in there was having, having a birthday. Like literally every table, you'd hear people singing happy birthday. Uh, but I, I see both sides of it. Let me put it that way. If you grew up with Peter Luger, I think the key is it's not always consistent. And if you're going to shell out a lot of money for a meal, you want a little bit of consistency. And I think that's the issue. And also, I will say, my one, and look, I love Peter Luger. I, I think there's some great people there. But why still to this day, I know it's tradition, why is there not a female on the wait staff? You know what I mean? Like, Because those are really well-paying jobs if you can get yes. one. And so to have them all be men, I just it's, that's a little issue with me. So that's my Peter Luger take. That's very fair. I believe it's also cash only still, right? Yep. Um, Unless you have the Peter Luger card. Right. At least the one in Brooklyn is. Uh, I mean, I've been a handful of times. It's always been, it's always been tremendous. The burger's Uh, great. Yeah. And I I know I said, you don't go there for the ambiance, but in some ways you do because it's a special, it's, it's a unique to it, that restaurant. Uh, It is bustling. It's hot. You know, the the staff's not super friendly and like, you're right. Everybody's having a birthday or an anniversary. Uh, But there's a, there's a a, a spirit of, of, of celebration maybe uh, that's in the bill in the room because of that. And I'll say this, like, can I just say how grateful we will all be when we can go back to debating whether or not, uh, the steak of Peter Luger's is, is worthy of its reputation, uh, because we can start actually going to restaurants again, where the places are packed and there are tables filled of happy people celebrating anniversaries of birthdays, uh, and not worried about getting sick. Absolutely. Last thing I want to throw at you, not food related, now that you're this big TV star, what are you going to do about your hair? What are you talking about? Now, no, I don't know. I don't mean, no, no, no. I don't mean like literally like right now, like you're, there's a problem with your hair. I'm talking about you You can't go to whoever cuts your hair 
right now. Oh. So at some point, you're gonna, I don't know about you, I got lucky. I got my hair cut right before things got bad. But like, think about people who didn't, who put it off. And now, I mean, people are trying to cut their own hair. Have you have you thought about this? Did I just bring up something it, it, you hadn't it, thought about? Like, no, no, no. You you did, you did. I thought you were taking another cheap shot. Um, <laughs> uh, and I will say, when I did actually sort of change how I do my hair a few years back, it received a lot of attention uh, on the twitters and such. So I'm prepared for the fierce criticism that will surely come uh, when I have to take matters in my own hands again, because that's what I'm going to do. I I I also got it not right at the end but it wasn't too far off so i'm not i probably have like another week or two where i'm okay yeah but then i'm gonna need to floby floby i i i i don't even think i i couldn't even find that so i went on amazon to buy some sort of hair cutting equipment and everything was backward you couldn't get anything for months <laughs> except for this like renegade uh sort of rogue operation so i have it in the house i don't haven't had the courage to even take it out of the packaging yet Will you um, do it yourself or will you let your wife Carrie do it? I mean, we <sighs> or the kids. It, yeah, at this point, maybe my best bet is to hand it to my five year old and say, do your do your best. Uh, I guess I'll just leave like this way. If if, if things go poorly, um, my appearances might need to be phone only uh, going forward <laughs> until this grows back a little bit. Well, John, John, thank you so much. You can follow John on Twitter at John Lemire. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rob Patron TV. And if you like what you just heard, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. That's B-L-E-A-V. Check them out at B-L-E-A-V.com. That's all I've got. Stay safe and sane. And until next time, ciao. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.